1: This is the Read to Lead Podcast, episode three hundred two. Hi, I'm Brian J. Jones, the author of Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, and the Making of American Imagination. Stretch your imagination each time you listen to this. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. Hi, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. And the reason I launched this podcast is because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is key and with that in mind the read to lead podcast is going to help you narrow your reading list and bring you the key insights and main ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors today we'll be joined by gleb supersky he's author of the book never go with your gut how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters I'll ask Gleb to share if there's really never a time to go with your gut. We'll dive into the influence of cognitive biases on business decisions. I'll ask Gleb to detail the concept of failure-proofing your business decisions and much, much more. And though Gleb's new book has only been out since November, I know he has a new one coming out in April. He'll no doubt have more to say about that later on. Dr. Gleb Sapersky is a cognitive neuroscientist and expert on behavioral economics and decision-making. And as CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts, he spent over two decades consulting, coaching, speaking, and training hundreds of clients across North America, Europe, and Australia, including Aflac, IBM, Honda, Wells, Fargo, and the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, With over uh, 15 years in academia, including seven as a professor at Ohio State University, He's published dozens of peer-reviewed pieces in academic journals like Behavior and Social Issues and the Journal of Social and Political Psychology. His thought leadership, in fact, has been featured in Fast Company, CBS News, Time, CNBC, Inc. Magazine, and elsewhere. Now, he's authored a couple of books. The first was the best-selling The Truth Seekers Handbook. His new book, and the one we're diving into today, is Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid business disasters, something I think most leaders probably want to do. (laughs) Gleb, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's great to have you here.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me, Jeff. It's a pleasure.
1: Well, I think for context, uh, it would be good to maybe hear from you in regard to how your background and particularly, Gleb, your experience growing up uh, steered you toward your approach to decision making.
2: Well, it did actually come from my w- my very childhood. Both of my parents were very gut-oriented people. Mm. When they felt something was right, that meant it was right. <laughs> Unfortunately, they both had different feelings about what was right. Mm. For example... My mom, you know, she liked buying nice clothing, and my dad is a kind of a cheapskate. So, <laughs> when she you know, come home and bought a $50 sweater, he would yell at her and say, you know, no, sweaters shouldn't cost not more than any $20. Only $20. <laughs> so, that was kind of one thing that I saw my parents fighting about, that little stupid stuff. And I already, as a kid, I saw that it was not great and it was mm. impacting me as a kid, them fighting about it. The worst time was when my dad, he was a real estate agent, so he had variable income. And this one time, he made quite a bit of money, but he had it from my mom, so that he didn't make any money in that period. And he bought an apartment elsewhere, and he leased it out. A couple of years later, once she found out, there was a huge scandal, Mm. big blow-up scandal. They end up, actually, it was so bad, they end up separating for a while. I mean, they eventually reconciled. But my mom could never trust him again. Mm. And seeing that, then, you know, I stayed with my mom, so I saw, you know, my dad rarely for that period. That, of course, impacted me pretty powerfully as a kid. Right. And seeing that, uh, you know, I realized my parents weren't gods, and they, you know, their financial <laughs> decision making was kind of screwed up sometimes, and they made bad decisions. I was growing up. I was born '81. I was growing up further out of a kid, out of my family. And I came of age in 1999 when tech leaders were partying like it's 1999. <laughs> For those who remember that print song, maybe it ages me. So they were making great amount of money. Webvan, Pets.com, Boo.com, they were really booming. And then a couple of years later, they all went bust. 2002, I was 21. So they were You know, the tech leaders were in the front pages of the Wall Street Journal for all the right reasons in 1999, for all the wrong reasons in 2002. And I saw that and, you know, it made me realize, okay, you know, plenty of people who are celebrating their culture right now. Will very likely be the you know next losers, next zeros in a couple of years, Mm. just because of you know they're celebrated for their brilliant decision making in 1999 and then punished in 2002. And even worse were the people who were making maliciously bad decisions. The leaders of Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, the Bernie Ebers of the world, who were hiding their losses from the dot com bust by using fraudulent accounting methods. They were clearly maliciously making bad decisions, but these bad decisions really bit them in the butt just a couple. Of years later, when they (laughs) did the perp walk and were in the Mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal in handcuffs for all the wrong reasons. So I realized that, you know, business leaders make terrible decisions and it causes so much suffering for them to be making these decisions for everyone around them. Employees, customers, clients, whatever, lots of people suffer. And I always cared about addressing suffering. From when I was a kid, my values are utilitarian, which means wanting the most good for the most number. Mm. And that drove me to go. To study decision making, you know, why do we make these screwed-up decisions? <laughs> why does that happen all the time? happens at small business levels, too. If you look at the Small Business Administration, looking at the history of small business failure, you'll see that over the last 50 years, since the Small Business Administration has been tracking small business failure, about half of all small businesses fail within the first five years, about over two-thirds fail within the first 10 years. Mm. And again, all because people go with their gut, they go with their intuitions, they go with their feelings. As I learned once I started studying this topic formally, once I studied it, I started doing training, consulting, coaching on it. And then I needed more education because what was available wasn't enough. So I went into academia and studied it formally for 15 years. So I was doing training, consulting, coaching for 20 years and academia for fifteen years, and of course, part of that time was overlapping. I was moonlighting as an academic, mm-hmm. and that's what brought me here. Appreciate
1: the the context because I think that's that's going to benefit us for the the remainder of our of our conversation. Uh, in that, the title of the book is so absolute: "To Never Go with Your Gut." Is there really never a time to go with your gut in business decisions, or, or are there exceptions?
2: There's never time to go with your gut, with your primitive primal instincts, in business decisions. As such, the only times that are Appropriate to go with your gut, the primitive natural instincts is when the situation is similar to when our gut is actually adapted for. Mm. And here we have to understand what our gut is adapted for. What is it there for? You know, we never ask this question. We just go, "Hey, this is what I feel comfortable with, and this is what I do. That's what people advise us to do. That's mm. what that's what I'll do." And this feeling of comfort, this feeling of this is the right thing, which is what comfort feels like, which is this is the good thing, comes. From the savanna environment. It comes from when we were hunters and foragers mm-hmm. living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people max. So that's what our gut is adapted for. So if we were in the savanna environment, you, you can go with your gut, you know, that's great, please go ahead. But in the modern business environment, it's very different from the savanna environment. So let's think about what the savanna environment was like. It was critical for us to have instincts that would cause us to be very tribal, meaning, we want to like people who look like us, who think like us, who have our beliefs, mm. who have our perceptions and so on, because if our tribe fell apart without sufficient cohesion, we would die. And if we were kicked out of our tribe because we weren't sufficiently tribal, we would die And we had to, as part of that, dislike people who didn't have these tribal characteristics because we needed to be able to effectively and quickly fight opposing tribes. Mm -hmm. That was part of what the dynamic was. That was one aspect of tribalism. The other aspect of tribalism was it was very important for us to climb as high in the tribal hierarchy as possible for us to get as many resources as possible to survive and to spread and reproduce. So the people who our, our ancestors, we are the descendants of those people who are very tribal and very good at climbing up to the top of the tribal hierarchy. Mm what we found out later were the causes for the horrible decision-making of the maliciously horrible, the leaders of Enron, WorldCom, and Tyco, and so on. They didn't want to lose social status. They didn't want to lose reputation in the face of their peers. They would rather not lose the reputation within the first year or two by admitting that they were losers, that they were failures, <laughs> and take the long-term hit of going to jail. Unfortunately, that's how their minds work because they went with their intuition. So that's kind of that social status climbing. And it causes so much bad decision-making in business where leaders can't let go of the fact that they lost, that they failed. They need, they can't admit it, and they keep going ahead, and their business suffers greatly. And we can talk about that separately. Mm. So it's kind of tribalism. The other aspect of really bad decision-making that comes from the Savannah environment is the fight-or-flight response. Now, it was very important for our ancestors to be able to jump very quickly at 100 shadows in order to get away <laughs> from that one saber-toothed tiger or to attack that fight the opposing tribal member. You might notice there are many less saber-toothed tigers nowadays, but we react to nasty, threatening emails as to other saber-toothed tigers. You know, when we get constructive, critical feedback from clients, customers, peers, and so on, we react to this as so though it's a saber-toothed tiger. And we make very quick decisions. Leaders, in fact, are praised for making very quick decisions, whereas they need to much it will be much more effective for them to slow down, make more calm decisions as opposed to a defensive or aggressive decision, which is what unfortunately very many leaders tend to make. So when we should go with our gut are very limited situations when we are actually in a sort of life or death situation, (laughs) Savannah situation. You know, when we have a bus going at us, you know, we want to jump out of the way without thinking about it. That's good. You know, you have a baseball flying at your head. That's fine. That's one. The other area is when you know somebody really well and that person starts to, you start to feel that that person is acting in a weird way off, something's off, you might want to start to question whether their latest business proposal is something you want to engage with. Because that is something like what the tribal Environment was so that is indicative that those are areas where we can go with our intuition pretty be pretty comfortable with it. Otherwise, we should not go with our intuition. We we can't. I mean, business leaders think they can tell who is lying or not. They can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> there was a study done by on comparing really great people, the CIA, FBI, National Security Agency, mm. Secret Service, and so on, and the vast majority of these people couldn't tell apart whether a person they didn't know was lying or not. Their rate of accuracy was 52%, which is just a a bit better than flipping a coin. The Secret Service was the only one that had a significantly better rate of accuracy of telling apart who's lying. Mm. So our gut is really bad in business decisions. With that in mind,
1: why does it seem that so many experts and, and gurus... You encourage exactly that, going with going with your gut. Do you have an explanation for that?
2: Sure. Same reason the doctors uh, 100 years ago were selling snake oil, which was a <laughs> mixture of cocaine, alcohol, and sugar. It feels good. It'll take care of your symptoms, but it won't actually cure you, you know, and it'll make them money. Mm-hmm. So, they basically, the, these gurus, you know, the state of medicine has advanced greatly over these last hundred years, where if a doctor told you to take snake oil, you know, cocaine, alcohol, and sugar, you'd probably fire that doctor and report him, <laughs> hopefully, for her. Then, right now, we know that our gut intuitions on what we should eat and how we should exercise are bad. We know we should not eat, you know, that third chocolate chip cookie. You the second one's okay, but the third one is too much. You know, that's not something we should be doing. That is a bad thing to do. We still have the obesity epidemic here in the United States, but it's been de- getting better because people have been listening to the research on this topic. We know you know, it's, it's very comfortable. In the savanna environment it was very important for us to eat as much sugar as possible in order to survive, but very bad in the modern environment. <laughs> Same thing in the Regarding exercise, it's in a savanna environment. We needed to stay calm, still, unless we were, you know, hunting a mammoth or something like that, <laughs> or running away from a saber-toothed tiger. So it's very intuitive and very comfortable for us to just, you know, sit uh, on our couch and watch Netflix all day. It's very uncomfortable to put on our sweats and go to the gym. But we know we need to do that according to the research in order to actually have physical fitness. My book is actually the first one to address. How do you overcome these dangerous judgment errors called cognitive biases in business settings? This is the first book popularizing the research on these topics, unfortunately. So we're kind of at the stage right now with decision-making research, evidence-based business decision-making, as we are with medicine in, you know, beginning of the last century, around Mm. 1900. So these gurus they're making tons of money by telling people to do what's comfortable for them, by telling people to drink the snake oil, by telling people to eat that box of dozen donuts and sit on their couch all day. If a doctor told you, or a physical trainer told you to sit on the couch all day, watch Netflix and eat this box of dozen donuts I have for you, it would feel very good. You'd <laughs> like to hear that information. You'd be like, wait, hey, gay, great. But you probably know that that's not the good thing for you because you've heard all the research-based evidence out there. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, the research-based evidence out there for business decision making is hidden in complex, dense journals, where the, each article is something like thirty dollars per pop. And <laughs> in order to in order to actually get through the article, you have to have a serious academic education. Well, you don't need to do that. You know, I read the articles. My book has citations up the wazoo. Of you know, I, there's a couple of hundred articles cited there. If you want to actually look at the articles, but the book actually condenses them, summarizes them, so and gives you practical case studies of how you can apply them in business settings. So you don't need to actually do, do that mm. because, you know, this is part of the popularization of the research, just like there was popularization of the medical research starting in the you know, beginning of the 20th century.
1: Gleb, I'm sure there's somebody listening right now who's maybe thinking of, of examples of business leaders who, in their mind, uh, in, in the minds of many, are famous for their uh, great instincts. I, I'm thinking of like uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, yeah. or or Steve Jobs, or. Uh, Henry Ford, uh, have we twisted history? Is it, is it just a myth that, that, that they went on gut instincts most of the time?
2: Yes, uh, we have twisted history. So they actually have very often not gotten with their gut instincts. They like to represent themselves as going with their gut instincts. <laughs> it's very easy to you know say, here, I am the magician behind the curtain, and I'm going to go with my gut instincts, and my gut instinct is right, because it's hard to argue with that. If you say, you know, I'm the person who's right, rather than having to defend your, <laughs> your decision-making <laughs> You know, that's uh, it's much much easier to say that I have the magic touch, but if look, let's look at these people. I mean, let's think about Jeff Bezos. So, getting a little bit into politics, he bought Washington Post about ten years ago. Hmm. Right now, when is it? About a month ago, we found out that it cost him at least ten billion to have bought the Washington wow. Post, where Amazon lost the bid for which would clearly should have won. Amazon clearly should have won the bid for the def- for the defense agency cloud computing services. And it lost it to Microsoft after the Trump administration, which does not like the Washington Post, has been bashing it for a while, mm. intervened into the bidding process, which it you know should not do ideally, but it intervened this, the bidding process and said, no, you know, Amazon should not get this. Mm. So we it, it cost him very just that one decision alone to buy the Washington Post. Of course it cost him much more, but this is just one example. Of where it cost them a huge amount of money, $10 billion. Mm. And we can find the same examples with all of these other decisions. I mean, well, you know, Henry Ford was a Nazi supporter. I'm sorry for those who don't know this, but he, you know, if you look at the history, he was very supportive of the Nazis. Mm. Very bad decision-making, cost him a lot of resources. And let's not forget his famous line that, you know, uh, you can have a car in any color as long as it's black, right? right. <laughs> that cost the Ford company a lot of money when he went with his intuition on how cars should look. Right? Mm, mm. So we can find these sorts of examples in any business leader. And, you know, you can go to others. You can go to, let's say, John uh, Welch. He was CEO of GE from 1981 to 2001. People say he's great. He's been wonderful. But his Probably the most important decision you can make as a CEO is find your successor. And Jeffrey Immelt, the next chairman and CEO of GE, unfortunately made a lot of terrible decisions. And Welch has himself said that, hey, that was really a bad decision on my part. So, yeah, the folks make a lot of bad decisions. And those who we hold up as geniuses now will probably be a little bit later. We'll see that they had serious problems. I mean, look at Dennis Muhlenberg, the CEO of Boeing. (laughs) I mean, he was really upheld as a great great guy before the crashes of the 737 max and you know what happened very recently a couple of weeks ago he was fired
1: Mm. well let's let's talk about maybe riding the ship in in regard to some of this let's dive into uh, cognitive biases uh and if you would uh for maybe the uninitiated define what that is and and how influential are cognitive biases in business decisions
2: Cognitive biases are the dangerous judgment errors that come from how our brain is wired. We make a lot of screw-ups because of the way that our brain is wired coming from the evolutionary heritage. I already mentioned a couple of broad patterns that cause us to make those decisions. And also just some specific ways our our brain is structured. So, for example, our emotions, our intuitions turn on way quicker than our logical pattern of thinking just the way that that's our brain is structured. And so, uh, we tend to lead with emotions. In fact, what the research shows about this is that about 80 to 90% of our decision-making is emotional in nature. It comes from our emotions, our intuitions, our gut reactions. And so, because they lead, they pow- overpower us. We only later rationalize them and say, hey, mm-hmm. here is how logical we are. Not really. Uh, unless you use techniques to address that problem. So c- cognitive biases are these errors that we tend to make because of how our brain is wired that lead us away from the optimal decision-making process of whatever our goals is. So in business, it would be overwhelmingly to make sure that we have the right bottom line. Mm. Or, you know, sometimes you want to look at the triple bottom line depending on what kind of business you're running. If you're in a nonprofit, you want to look at your mission, but this applies to all other life areas. So I'll have a book coming out in April to 2020 called The Blind Spots Between Us, which is about relationships, professional, personal, and so on, applies just as much to relationships. We make bad decisions around people and in our personal lives, just like we make it in business lives. There's a reason there's about a 40% divorce rate in this country. Mm. It's, yeah, they're really, really bad and harmful for our decision making. Unfortunately, we don't get any information, any education about what are the cognitive biases and how to address them.
1: Well, are there certain biases that are more dangerous in uh, business decision making than other cognitive biases or ones that we Mm -hmm.
2: especially need to look out for? Yes. So my book looks at the 30 most dangerous ones in business settings. Now, you can take a look at the list of cognitive biases in Wikipedia. I don't always recommend Wikipedia. In this case, <laughs> I do. I know the people who manage this page, good scholars, graduate students, and so on. Good list of cognitive mm, biases. Good. My book talks about the 30 most dangerous ones for business, how to address them. So I'll give you a couple of examples. There is a phrase that folks often use, failing to plan is planning to fail. So failing to plan is planning to fail. Very common phrase, Hmm. unfortunately, very misleading because when we make plans, We intuitively tend to have very high opinions of ourselves, Mm. have very high opinions of our plans, and think that things will go according to plan. (laughs) Well, they very often won't. Talk talk about, let's say, Boeing, which you just talked about. They probably did not have this plan for the 737 MAX. Mm. They did not think this would happen. But now that we are looking at the documents that are coming out from Boeing, we know that there was knowledge, including among the senior leadership, of very serious issues with the Boeing 737 Mm -hmm. MAX. And they decided that, hey, you know, it's not going to be that big a deal. You know, we'll just go forward. And, of course, we saw what happened. So our plans often don't go according to plan. Look at what happened with WeWork. About a year ago, it was valued at $75 billion. And then the leader, Adam Newman, wanted to go for an IPO. There were a number of people who told him, hey, we're not ready for an IPO. But he said, no, we're going to go for an IPO. We'll plan ahead. We'll go forward. And once WeWork was actually investigated by the potential investors, they saw that, A, the revenue model was pretty broken. Mm. B, the governance structure was pretty bad. And C, that Adam Newman had a lot of self dealing where he owned some businesses, rendered them to WeWork itself. So, corruption, essentially, unethical mm. stuff. And so, as a result, right now, WeWork is valued at around $7 billion in the latest round of investments, <laughs> $68 billion, It's an order of magnitude difference. And so, this kind of cognitive bias, which affects us in all sorts of areas, is called the planning fallacy, where we tend to think things will go according to plan, and they really won't. Mm. A much better phrase, a good way to remember this, is that failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. Again, failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. It's a much more effective phrase. So planning fallacy. Another one, and this is one I'm prone to, unfortunately, this is a tough one for me. It's called the optimism bias. It's something that affects a lot of founders, a lot of leaders, a lot of entrepreneurs. And I'm an entrepreneur. I own a small company of six people, disaster avoidance experts, which is a training, consulting, coaching company. So people who are optimistic, like I am tend to be risk-blind. We tend to not understand how bad some things can be. We tend to have way too high expectations. We think the grass is green on the other side of the hill when it's actually yellow. So this is a dangerous problem, especially for business leaders. And there's a lot of research showing that business leaders who are more optimistic tend to do problematic things like overpay for companies in mergers and acquisitions and overinvest in growth, leading to a company running out of cash and going bankrupt. And there are many, many other cases, instances, where optimism causes leaders to make really bad decisions. And these are just two out of many, many cognitive biases. You might have heard of the confirmation bias, Mm. which causes us to look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. So, let's say if we're looking at a potential hire, and we like this person, we clicked with this person, we look for information that confirms our desire to hire this person, and kind of put it to the side, ignore information that might indicate that she's a bad hire. So that <laughs> is just the way it would work with hiring. So those are three out of the 30 cognitive biases that are described in the book, and there are over a hundred altogether that cause us to make really bad decisions. Mm.
1: Uh, one thing you write about that, that I shared with with a mastermind group uh, that I run proved to be truly valuable for many of them is the decision making techniques you lay out that we can use to address uh, cognitive biases and the problems that they cause. Uh, in other words, ways we can actually overcome these dangerous uh, judgment errors. So, there, are, I think, were eight in all, and you don't necessarily have to cover all eight, but I was uh, hoping you might highlight uh, some of those because I think those will prove to be really helpful.
2: Sure. So, if you want to look at a way to address these, there's a technique using eight steps, which will take care automatically of the large majority of the cognitive biases. So again, you can take care of them individually. So the way I take care of my optimism biases, I make sure to run my ideas by pessimist before (laughs) executing important ones. But you can also take care of a number of them at once by using this technique. So first, you want to identify the need for a decision to be made. This is a surprisingly critical one. We can go back to Boeing. They didn't identify the need to put more safety features into Mm. the 737 MAX. They didn't identify the need to be more honest with the FAA as opposed to screwing them around. Mm. And those are kind of just some uh, examples of where recent screw-ups happened. But if you go back to the 1990s, Polaroid which, you know, remember, shake it like a Polaroid picture for those mm-hmm. who remember that. Again, that may age me. So <laughs> that company, it was looking at considering going into digital in the early 1990s. And it saw that it's photographic film, the one that you shake, had a 60% profit margin. If it went into digital, it would only have 38% profit margin. So it decided to just kind of keep going with a photographic film. Well, it discovered that 60% of nothing is still nothing and <laughs> went bankrupt in 2001. So that's an example of, you know, where you don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Next, gather relevant information from a variety of informed perspectives on the issue at hand. So you want to make sure to look for people who both have the information and people who are not the yes people, people Mm. who have different opinions than you. It's going to be very hard for people in leadership roles to do that. I've seen that this step is a big failure mode of many, many leaders who unfortunately end up being surrounded by yes men and women because they don't deliberately look for people who would be devil's advocates in their team because it's uncomfortable. It's not intuitive. You want people who agree with you. You want people to be part of your tribe. Mm. And the default, if you don't specifically actively look out for these people, you'll only have yes people on your team. Then decide on the goals you want to reach, paint a clear vision of the desired outcome. Very, very often, <laughs> organizations actually just go ahead with something they think is a good idea without a clear idea of the desired outcome. Why the heck did Kmart and Sears merge? Why two <laughs> bad retailers, two struggling retailers merging into a big struggling retailer? <laughs> Whoever thought that was a good idea? Well, apparently, some people did, right? <laughs> they had no idea what their vision of the outcome was. They did They And they didn't close stores. They just kept things going. Yeah. Then you want to develop clear decision-making criteria to evaluate options. This is critical. You want to decide in advance. What criteria you'll use to evaluate the decision before you get to the options, before mm-hmm. you generate options. For example, if you're hiring someone, let's go to that. You'll want to look at things like salary, things like fit, things like personality, things like their social network within the field and compare them to each other. How important is their network compared to their salary, compared to their fit in the culture and so on. So you'll be able to evaluate your decision, your options much more effectively without having various biases sway you. And next one, fifth, generate viable options. You know, Choose five people that you might want to hire. Mm. And then weigh these options, picking the best of the bunch. So you'll weigh the five options according to decision-making criteria. And that gives you a very clear mathematical structure. Extensive research has shown that using probabilistic thinking, mathematical thinking, weighing odds, uh, putting numbers on things helps address a lot of the cognitive biases because math mm. is somewhat rational but less rational than <laughs> <laughs> less rational than just ordinary human thinking next implement the option you choose and here as part of the implementing the option what you want to do is imagine that the option completely failed, whatever you're choosing, your hire, the IPO, your new product, whatever you're doing. And think about the reasons why it failed. What are all the possible reasons that it, that it might have failed? So, for example, with a new hire, maybe you didn't check the references closely enough, or maybe no. uh, you didn't, the person didn't, doesn't have the right personality fit and you didn't think about that well enough. Those are all things that I've seen cause the hires to go in the wrong direction. And then you actually can take care of these things in advance and see if the person might not be personality fit, check the references, and so on. And the same applies to any decision. So integrate ways to address the failure modes into the decision. And finally, evaluate the implementation process. Revise as needed. Make sure you have numbers on success. So for example, if you are launching a new product, you can have something like, if the product hits 4.5 million within the first six months, we're golden. If it doesn't, then we have to have a serious revision of the launch plan. Mm. And then you can evaluate against that number. So you have a, so you have a clear revision point and inflation point where you can change things around if needed.
1: Well, you did that so much more succinctly than I thought possible. That was all eight. That was (laughs) all eight. Well done. Thank you very much. Well, let's assume we're making better decisions now. There's still the act of executing those decisions Mm -hmm. uh, effectively. Uh, Share a bit about the concept you call failure proofing.
2: Yes, and that is a great expansion on step seven. So step seven is about the execution implementation. So failure proofing involves actually thinking about all the ways that something can fail and succeed in addressing these in advance. So mm. you think about the, the decision, whatever you're implementing. You know, the Boeing could have thought about the, the fact that one of the ways that, that Boeing's plane failed, there are many ways. One of the ways it failed was that Boeing was delivering the plane to pilots who had very little training. So they had were just finished pilot school, maybe had a little bit of simulated training. Boeing was assuming that the pilots who flew the plane would have significant flight experience so it was delivering the plane to pilots mm-hmm. in you know southwest or american airlines but it, it didn't think about ethiopian airlines or lion air were places where these pilots didn't have nearly enough experience. And so when the nose dive happened, which killed the people in Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines, those two crashes, the same things happened in Southwest American Airlines, but the pilots knew how to address this. So they knew how to take care of this because they had a lot of flight experience. So that's a clear example Mm. of where Boeing wasn't thinking about a specific failure mode. So you need to think about all the ways that your decision can fail and how you can take care of all of these ways in advance. So now we know that one of the things that the new investigation has revealed is that Boeing seriously pressured regulators around the world to avoid simulator trainings on the 737 MAX because it would be quite a bit more expensive for Boeing to deliver simulator trainings as part of the planes. And we know that simulator trainings would have addressed a lot of the problems. So right now, one of the solutions that the FAA, it's pretty clear that it will mandate is serious simulator trainings for pilots on the 737 MAX. So that was a way that Boeing could have taken care of Of the problem, a large amount of the problem in advance. So that's an example in real life scenario of how you can address this problem. And you can do the same thing for whatever thing you're doing, whatever decision you're doing, whether you're, again, hiring something, launching a new product, deciding on a crucial supplier. Anything you're doing, you can think about failures, address them in advance. So that's one part of it. That's the way to take care of risks. Now you also want to maximize opportunities when you're Mm -hmm. making a decision. Well, how you do that is imagine all the ways that this can succeed. You know, how can it succeed wildly beyond your dreams? How can it be super awesome? You know, how can the 737 MAX Completely outcompete the Airbus Mm -hmm. 320 competitor. Think about all the ways it could do that. What would cause that to happen? What would cause that success? What would cause the success of this new hire? Maybe you're promoting someone into a new supervisory role. Perhaps you want to think about giving this person some leadership training. This is a big, big failure mode where people are promoted into a supervisory role and it's assumed that they'll just know what to do. They're not given leadership training, which will actually help them succeed. So you have a lot of failures with new managers, new supervisors, because they're not given leadership training. And this is how the best salesperson becomes the new sales manager. And you know what? That's often a very bad idea because the skills that it takes to become the best salesperson are often at odds with the skills that it takes to be a great sales manager. Mm. But companies promote the wrong person into the role and then they don't give this person training. So if you give this person training, first of all, and if you find the right person for the role, that would make it much more successful. And so you imagine all of these things and then you combine that into your decision and then you implement these going forward. So that's going to be something that will make it much more likely for your decision to succeed because that way you'll address the risks and you'll address the opportunities. You know,
1: it's it's so timely, this conversation. As you're talking, literally as you're speaking, I have a notification from the Wall Street Journal coming across my desk with the headline, Internal Boeing Documents Show Cavalier Attitude to Safety.
2: Yep, yep.
1: Uh, This is not going away anytime soon. Nope. Well, I've got a couple of questions for you, Gleb, not directly related to your book, but before Mm -hmm. I jump into those, anything else from the book I didn't cover that you want to make sure we we walk away with?
2: Ah, There's a quick technique that you can use to address risks very quickly. Here are five questions you can ask about any decision that will only take you a couple of minutes to ask about any decision that you don't want Mm. to screw up. First, what important information didn't I yet fully consider? So what evidence didn't I take into account? We want to look for evidence that supports our beliefs. This question is about looking for evidence that goes against our beliefs. Try to disconfirm your your preferred option. Much more likely to succeed if you do, uh, if you try to disconfirm it. Second, what dangerous judgment errors, cognitive biases didn't they address? There are going to be a number relevant to each decision and you want to make sure that whatever ones are relevant to the decision that you addressed. Third, what would a trust and objective advisor suggest I do? Think about someone you trust who's objective. What would they suggest you do? Think about what Jeff would suggest you do. Think Hmm. about someone who, you know, the little angel on your shoulder. You get about 50% of the benefit by asking this question because you take yourself outside of yourself. And of course, you get the other 50% of the benefit by, you know, calling this person or if you're a millennial, texting this person. Hmm. Fourth, how have I addressed all the ways this could fail? Same thing as before I mentioned. This doesn't talk about success because this is just meant to minimize risks, minimize problems. Imagine how it could fail and how you can address these problems in advance. And finally, what new evidence would cause me to revisit this decision? What would cause you to change your mind? When we implement the decision, it's much harder for us in that implementation stage to evaluate information rationally coldly, calmly. But Mm. this is why we need to decide when we're actually making the decision what new information would cause us to change our mind.
1: I'd intended to ask about that. I wrote notes down about that, about those five questions and left it off my list. So thank you for, for interjecting those. I appreciate it. Well, I want you to think about the books that have impacted you over the course of your career, Gleb. Maybe share two or three that have impacted you the most and maybe share why or how they impacted you as they did, if you can.
2: Sure, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking, Fast and Slow would be definitely one. Mm. He's the forefather of the research in cognitive biases, and he's part of the first generation of scholars that discovered all the ways that our brain is screwed up, <laughs> and the points don't matter, right? <laughs> so that my generation, the, sec- is the second generation, which is looking at debiasing, mm. how do you actually fight effectively and address these cognitive biases? But Thinking, Fast and Slow just goes in real depth into all of these cognitive biases, looks at the research. You know, my book doesn't talk about the the studies themselves—it so cites them. It doesn't talk about them. It talks about solving business problems. But that oh. book talks about the studies, goes in depth. It's great. I really like it. That's one that has been quite impactful for me. Then I really like the EMF book series. Hmm. Uh, EMF book series are about how do you actually structure small and mid-sized businesses effectively by Michael Gerber. Mm. And it talks about setting up systems, setting up processes. It's great because if you set up the right systems and the right processes, you'll take care of a lot of cognitive biases effectively automatically because you will actually integrate ways of debiasing, addressing, overcoming these cognitive biases into your systems and processes. So those are the two I would name. Uh, And I've
1: uh, read both of those. I recommend ah. them highly as well. Yes. Excellent. Well, you're lecturing often obviously uh, as part <laughs> of your university gig. You've done a number of, of keynotes mm-hmm. and other speaking. I'd be curious to know Gleb what you consider to be your top tips for delivering an impactful and, and memorable public talk.
2: Yeah, this is a really important question. So, I'm for example, I'm doing a two-day workshop training for the World Wildlife Fund mm. starting Monday. And the way I'm preparing for it is that I made sure to interview a number of people in the World Wildlife Fund who are going to be part of the audience. It's a workshop on uh, stakeholder engagement. So what are their problems? What are their needs? And so on. So you want to make sure that you know your audience very well and you want to communicate to them that you know them very well. Mm. So what I did was I integrated case studies, stories of each of these interviews into my presentation. And they will be able to tell, these are people who are in the audience they will know that I prepared the content for them. And of course, I adapted the content based on what they said, and I also am showing them mm. that I customized the speech to them. So I think this is that's really important for the audience to be very customized, targeted for them to have that feeling that you know and care about them. And that's one aspect of what I want to mention. The other thing that I want to mention, I'm going to go back to the emotions. Something that a lot of public speakers do is they focus on the logic, on the communication, on the education, education. But what they don't focus nearly enough on is the emotions of the audience. What are the emotions of the the audience is feeling? How do you want them to feel at each moment in your talk? That is something that is really important for you to think about and prepare for the audience to come away with the right impact, because they'll really remember how you made them feel. They might not remember the content Nearly as much, but they'll remember how you made them feel and they will associate those feelings with the content of your talk and that will help them retain the content.
1: Love that. That's great. Well, finally, I'd love to know what you're working on now that you're excited about or maybe what's around the corner that uh, you're about to uh, embark upon.
2: What I'm really excited about around the corner is the new book, the one that's coming out in April 2020, The Blind Spots Between Us. Mm. So that will talk about relationships, professional, personal, civic, community and how do we make sure that we address all of these incredible amount of relationship problems that we have, everything from the 40% divorce rate to lots of conflicts with friends and family, to our inability to get along effectively and influence our colleagues at work to the high, high polarization in our country right now that is really very damaging for the future of our democracy. So how do we overcome these? And these are all caused by cognitive biases, the heart, where we're making the wrong decisions about our relationships so that's something i'm really excited about Mm.
1: well i recommend this book be read by you and your staff Uh, the author Mm. again our guest today dr gleb Zapersky. and the book is called never go with your gut how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters gleb thank you again so much for being a part of the read to lead podcast and, and coming on today
2: Thank you so much, Jeff. And I'm glad that you shared a, a tip from the book already with your mastermind group and that it proved helpful.
1: For more on Gleb and his book, including the books and other resources that Gleb and I talked about today, you can check out the show notes page that I've created just for today's episode. That is at com slash 302 for our episode 302. A quick side note, I am setting aside time in the second half of 2020 and beyond for more public speaking. If you or someone you know are in need of someone to speak on personal and professional growth in the workplace, among other topics, be sure to look me up, jeff at podcast.com. That's also the email address you want to use if you've got comments, questions, suggestions, or feedback for the Read to Lead podcast. I'd love to hear it. Again, that's jeff at read to lead podcast.com. I am so thankful to you for listening to the read to lead podcast. If you find an episode helpful, I hope you take it upon yourself to share it with those who you think it might impact. That means a lot. Well, that does it for another week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the read to lead podcast. Until then, remember leaders read and readers lead.